0: Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the uh, University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is October 28th, and it's our pleasure to be talking today with Asohan Amar-Singham, who is Associate Professor of Mathematics at City College and the Cooney Grad Center in New York City. Hi, Asohan. Um, Welcome. Uh, Around the table we've got our, you know, three mathematically inclined neuroscientists in our group. We've got Francesca Savelli. Mm -hmm. Hi, Francesca. Hi. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Hey Charlie, and we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Hey. So um, I didn't give your lab an introduction, so I'm just going to say that your work concerns <laughs> statistical problems in neural coding and computation, very generally, um, including questions related um, to large-scale neurophysiological data. I'm telling you as if you don't already know, you know, but it's for our listeners, um, and their implications for understanding um, dynamics and functional properties of neuronal circuits. So. Um, So let's let's just get to it. I I don't wanna stop the momentum here because you guys were already having a great discussion when I I hit the record button and then stopped everything. So um, I wanna start just with this general idea and you guys run with this. Um, So uh, just by way of introduction, so much of your work has centered on bearing out um, the limitations of conceptual assumptions, right? Like um, about instantaneous firing rate and its relationship to synchrony and variability. and and these are things that have been used to understand structure and, and spike train data that is sort of at the basis of all the, the neural coding literature. Um, can you talk to us about this problem? Because you've written about this and it kind of frames a lot of the way you you, you think about attacking um, conceptual things with statistical tools to bear out um, problems in neuroscience.
1: Um, actually, I'm so the que- so just repeat the, the could you narrow down the <laughs> question a little bit? It was ill like pose, probably. <laughs> so
0: like, well, I basically just I I, I want to get to this idea of agnosticism. You talked uh. about agnosticism, and 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 that's a big word, and it means many yeah. things. But you mean it in a very specific way in relation to statistical um, analyses of neuronal spike data that has really relied on conceptual. Assumptions that are not agnostic that are sort of built on things like yeah. Know, there's okay.
1: Started, there's right? yeah. I guess the I guess the where I said it, dial it down, the problem is that there's so many different dimensions of that, um, so good and so yeah. I mean, what, what one thing I was saying when i when I met with the students is I found that um, you know the the attitude about statistics in neuros, in like neuroscience, particularly systems neuroscience, i almost familiar with is um, it's um, It's interesting. I think, you know, it could be described as torture for graduate students a lot of times, you know? And so, you know, one question is why that is. I mean, that kind of, it leads into what you're asking about, I think, a little bit. And what I mean by that is, like, you know, you look at a neuroscience paper and, you know, there might be, like, I don't know, 40 different hypothesis tests or something like that in there. Not very well described. It's just, like, using a parenthetical as if you know what these 40 different tests are. <laughs> just an asterisk. <laughs> and, you know, and then the reader just glazes over it. I mean, they're looking, at something, they're looking for something completely different. And then, but, then, but there's this performance. That's why it's like torture, because it's like you've got to put the statistical test in, figure out what it is. And so then you can imagine you know, the writer, and that's often, you know, it could be, say it's a student, but I didn't mean it that, like, as if... There are different classes of neuroscientists, but the writers say you know it has to find a test that sounds right, and it's that 's not really what they 're using to think about it though you know they 're not really using all the thought that went into statistics to develop these tests they're just they have their own ways of thinking about it because they don't understand that, and the mapping between that and neuroscience isn 't clear you know but we 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 have this um we have this um, you know i guess. Tradition and culture, and this, you know, of doing these hypothesis tests, and so they have to be in there. But what does it mean? Like, you know, Nature Neuroscience. um, Some years ago, um, I somehow I was the recipient of an email from them about we want to have these checklists now for statistical um, for the reviewers. I don't know what happened to that. I think maybe it's It's there, right? And they were like, "Do you have any advice about?" um, I was just part of a group. It wasn't like particularly for me about how to formulate that. And I was thinking, you know, often when I read a paper, because, okay, then I was trained in math, and, and I was supposed to try to be learned statistically, and I was trying to apply to neuroscience. So I was reading these neuroscience papers from the perspective of most students is where you just read the paper, and then these things that we were talking about, uh, the difference between what someone thinks and what the paper says hadn't dawned on me yet. And so I thought that the goal was, okay, let me look up these tests and <laughs> figure out why they did this test. And I, what I really found after years of that was like what I'd like write the, the writer to tell me is, you know, this is the crucial piece of this experiment from the narrative I'm telling. And then, and then the, there should be like three or four really carefully chosen statistical analyses. And I'm going to tell you why they're important. And I'm going to tell you what the assumptions are. And I'm going to tell you why those assumptions are relevant to the problem. And then I'd be able to read it and then think about it for myself but that's not how it works. And I think no. the way it works yeah. is more, it's like we've given up because we know that if we thought about it hard, we wouldn't really find it realistic or something, you know, if we go back into the assumptions. So then we kind of hide behind these, okay, this is pop- possibly a tertiary. We might be hiding behind hundreds of tests or whatever it is, not hundreds, but um, and we're, because we don't want to really focus on the key one and then the problems it raises. Because I think the problems it raises are, you know, what is the right assumptions to make about neural data for the theories we want to test about the brain? Um, and then that leads to the question of agnosticism. I think if you think about it, it seems like we want to be really agnostic um, in terms of this question of what assumptions do we make about neural data in order to answer questions about the brain? because the, this is one of the most highly designed systems in nature, it seems like. I mean, it's almost like an alien civilization has given us one of their technologies, and we're trying to figure out what it is. And then we treat things as independent and lots of noise, and that's how statistics was built. It was like, let's flip a coin again and again and again. And um, It doesn't seem like it maps well, you know, to... Um, yeah this incredibly designed system that's producing thought and, you know, seems to be spiking.
2: <laughs> that's like, oh, we know about it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's, so, that, so then when you try to do it seriously where you're like, okay, let's imagine I was trying to defend my assumptions and doing statistics, then I, I ended up working on narrower questions that I could get my hands around, but that seemed relevant to neuroscience. But then they, they, you know, the agnosticism there was minimal assumptions... Um, and, you know, how do you make sense of that? And, you know, that's a lot about what the talk was about. But if you get I on mean, a paper yeah. like
3: that, if you, do, if you re- actually do that, if you actually take statistics seriously, then you have to, like, argue and convince your reviewers and stuff about statistics. And a lot of them either don't know, and they don't want to do that, right, unless it's important. But, I mean, so they'd rather not have it be important and just have something that they're familiar with. Yeah. Uh, and, and go on and say, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm... I'm convinced, and see your graph, and that makes sense, as long as you find some things and check things off.
1: Well, okay, so this is interesting to think like about. So you guys agree with kind of the story I sketched? Was that would, would that be like...
2: Well, yeah, I'd tr- say there's a, a little more to it. I mean, you, you started off by saying that our students consider statistics... No, no, no at I was your students. And I uh, <laughs> teach statistics. Oh, okay, all right, I'm all right. It right now to the students yeah. who are in that room, so... That threw me a little bit off right from the very beginning, but... Oh, did I say that? <laughs> did I say that? The <laughs> Teaching evaluations are like... 30, 30 <laughs> hours, I mean. so, so, so I think the students probably have a hard time giving teaching evaluations that are not categorical, because one of the things about biology is that it is categorical. It is not quantitative. So people like to just put things into categories, as you know, just by looking at taxonomy, instead of instead of trying to assign a value to stuff. So one of the problems that biologists have with statistics is that it's sort of, a lot of it is continuous and parametric, and it, and it needs to be more categorical for them to think. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, I just don't, I don't see why we need statistics. There were only two outcomes, and it came out this way and not that way. Right. It's not like I had enough. Okay, that, that's what I mean. Is <laughs> that so?
1: You look for. I think. I think you. So one, one implication is like. If if your if your finding is subtle. And relies on an incredibly careful partitioning and, and precision about the data, then these. Um, these. Um, these assumptions could contaminate that, and you'd better be thinking about them carefully. Another thing to do is let let me just come up with a better experiment. Where it's clearer to me. Yes. Without all of that. And that's gonna get more tru- that's gonna have more play anyway because the, be the reader's that. gonna trust it. And so that's kind of um, that's kind of a way of saying it. But then you still have to do the performance act we still of doing uh, the statistics. Actually we still uh, end up
2: with the kind of data that we end up with which isn't necessarily the kind that we want. So right. our experiments don't come out clearly, categorically. Right. Right. And so we we were trying to force them into some yeah. categories in which they don't really necessarily belong. And we look for tools in the statistical armamentarium that allows us to force our data into whatever boxes we want it to be in. I mean, I, I guess I'm painting a kind of a negative picture, but that is the thing that you're noticing in the literature, maybe, and it was.
1: Well, I, just know, I definitely noticed when I went into a lab and I just saw how people were going from experimental research to publish papers. Yeah. And that pr- that's, I mean, torture is a.
2: Yeah, I I wouldn't write that down. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I'm sorry. You shared it with the world. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like, it was like, you know, it was just like a labor that I don't think anyone thought yeah. was valuable yeah. um, was a common reaction. Yeah. Um, that's true. I mean, there was some yeah. hunger for, because the problem is once you're dealing with very high dimensional data, then it becomes completely yes. unavoidable. All right. Um, And now
2: everybody finds themselves doing that. Yeah. And so there's a lot more interest in statistics now than there used to be among neuroscientists, I think.
4: Well, one point. So how come is that the more we use statistics and, you know, the amount of statistics and sophistication that we've been using, the more we go into the crisis of irreproducibility? And because statistics not being used the way it's supposed to be used. And I do remember um, what, uh, I think, Buzagi wrote in the obituary for um, case Van der Wolf. And he said that his papers had very little statistics because he would rather spend the time to repeat the experiments until he was convinced. Yeah. And if you read old literature, you know, there's less statistics but there are results yeah. that have been stood the test of time much more than, you know, more recent liter- literature that yeah. we find. So there's obviously a problem there.
1: Right.
4: Now, personally, I was always... Um, so one thing to appreciate is that what we use in experimental biology is what is called frequentist statistics. And it uh-huh. is irreconcilable, at least from, to some people. Including me, you mean it just it is normally irreconcilable with Bayesian statistics, Bayes, right? Statistics, which is what we should be using, in my opinion, and in other people's opinion. But if you look at the field of statistics, there is this fight between yeah. frequentist statistics and Bayesian statistics, which is philosophically irreconcilable. Some people will tell you they are philosophically irreconcilable. I do not believe so. But you know, I'm also not a statistician, so you know, like, take everything yeah. I say with a grain of salt. But, um, so there is this problem that, you know, if you think about frequency statistics, so all the hypothesis testing, so once you start going hypothesis testing, of course everything becomes a category, because it's yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. Everything becomes binary, and then it get combined like in a sort of Boolean way, which actually denies all the assumptions of frequency statistics. And then, um, Freelty is much younger. Like, you know, it's probably what, 80 years old or something like that. And people think that that's a scientific method. And it's just thirty. Okay, okay, so that, that's interesting comment. Would you so like to, you Yeah, like yeah to I, I could,
1: uh, I, I could thought about this <laughs> issue. I mean, so one thing you're pointing to, one thing, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, one thing you're pointing to is, um, uh, statistics is messy. Uh, meaning like, even if you go to the field for recommendations, you don't get a coherent response, right? Yeah. So I remember there was a um, there was an article in Nature. This is you know the, this was all highlighted in um, in this this reproducibility explosion, or what is the word for it. Um, crisis. Crisis right, yeah. was used, um, and you know there's a lot to say about that, and you probably don't want to turn this into a discussion of that <laughs> because mm-hmm. that's a whole thing. But um, you know I, I remember that there was like so Nature consult you know. Uh, um, asked a bunch of statisticians to give some advice, and and then what I what I noted when I saw that was like there's, there's lots of different advice on no. <laughs> how to deal with this problem. So that's one issue. On uh, the particular the base versus frequentist thing, I think I think that really. So look, what I presented today was all frequentist, right? Um, I would say something about um, it's not so binary because there's this question of p-values, which is not really binary. You have to think through it a little bit. What that comes to.
4: But what does the p-value say? Because most people think it's the probability that you know the the null hypothesis is. But
1: it's, it's not really. It's not okay. It's so not yeah. It's no, the not. problem it's is the p the p-value p- is hard to understand. But yeah. it comes from a place. So like, it's not true that they're. I I wouldn't say it's not true that they're um, irreconcilable. But actually, I think the frequentist is more agnostic. I I don't think that the reason my stuff was frequentist.
4: No, I don't think it's... Is, is separate.
1: No, no, either, it is... It was pre- I was just having like frequentist well. stuff. It, the, the, reason, um, the reason it's frequentist and the reason I was seeking agnosticism some not unrelated. So, like... Um, so, w- in fact, the original Bayesian, like, the, if you go back to the first... Uh, no, the original frequentist, you go back to, like, Neiman. If you look in that paper, what he was trying to do... Uh, this is the one where you get the name wrong and you're embarrassed later. <laughs> this is the same. Say <laughs> It's one of these guys, though. And um, you know what he was trying to do is he wanted conclusions that would be valid for all possible priors. So he was thinking about the Bayesian problem, but he didn't want to be. Um, he didn't want to choose a prior. He wanted a conclusion like if you, my reader, have a different prior than me, I want you to agree with me. That's agnosticism, right? Because the, pro- the, the you know. Bayesian is very compelling from um, compelling from a um, decision making point of view right it's like you cannot be co- a coherent decision maker and not be a Bayesian right all that stuff extremely compelling um, but you know what if you that's that's just that's one person's consistency how do you get intersubjective consistency so you have two different people so if a drug company gives me its conclusions with its priors, that that doesn't tell me anything. So then, then, you, then it seems like what you need is something that's independent of the prior. That's where the frequentist thing came from. That's the first Neiman frequentist. So that, so that ends up... So there's a great paper that I think everyone is, should read about this, which is from Bradley Efron, who's one of the giants in statistics. Um, in the event of the bootstrap, I mean, the number of contributions, National Mental Science was one of the leaders in statistics which is called Why Isn't Everyone evasion? And it's a short opinion piece. It's a classic in statistics. It's like 86. And he's just making some observations. One observation is, look, the the since Savage, the Bayesian view has been... Um, is dominated theoretical thinking, meaning like there's... Every, as if you read these papers, you're like, there's no thing else to do besides Bayesian. Like, we're all idiots for not being... thinking like Laplace, basically. As you said, that's the original way of thinking, right? So, like... Um, and he said, well, but then if you look at the literature, like biology, like everyone's using frequentist. It's
2: easy. Why are they doing it's it? It's
4: easier. No, but it he gives... a book g- or recipe, and yeah. it's easier, and you can just apply But he it. gives
1: these other reasons, like the ones I just mentioned. Like, he's saying, no, not everyone's an idiot. He didn't come to that conclusion, Efron. He's like, he thinks there's... A, he's saying, I think there's a reason that they keep doing it. And but, but anyway, one obvious one that you wouldn't have a qu- quick answer to is what if you disagreed about the prior?
4: But the prior in Bayesian, so the prior becomes less and less important as more data comes in. Oh, but okay, so that so, so that for example, just so okay, get more data. Yeah, do what Vanderwolf was doing. Okay, do more experiments. No, that's so the like, classic. Not,
1: that's the, there was like, that's the classic answer. But there's so that that's the bad part of the Bayesian story, right? Like, oh, the prior doesn't matter because it's, it's swamped by the, the likelihood. But you know, for example, in the stuff I talked about, that wouldn't have happened in that inconsistency stuff where things are really non-stationary. I it, the even if, it, if it, unless the prior is right, it's not going to be consistent. But that's because it's not stationary. The system's changing. So even that, like that's like IID data. Like, you know, that, that debate that the prior doesn't matter if you have enough data. If the likelihood is not consistent... See, so the, the example I gave at the end, it was like, I was taking this high-dimensional system and then I showed the maximum likelihood estimator is not consistent. So if the likelihood estimator is consistent, the prior is not going to save you unless the prior is right. So the posterior is not going to be consistent either. Because remember, the... Like the posterior is the product of the likelihood of the product. Anyway, I'm just kind of quoting the kind of arguments that Efron do, makes in this article. Yeah, right. Can, yeah. We, uh,
2: can I ask yeah, a, a, no, a neuroscience-related uh, question? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I did not so, lose you guys. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Just, we could yeah, start yeah. arguing then, whether <laughs> it's better to use <laughs> VI or to use yeah. V-max No, but, that, but, so, but this is no, related no, to... this is related to statistics because this is
4: just really... As much as I don't know that it's important. Well, this is related
1: to statistics, is messy because you can, yeah. there's different because schools of thought in statistics. statistics yeah. You
4: have to make all sorts of yeah. assumptions. I mean, there is no way of creating an unbiased. So here's, a good, here's, a, good, a, good, so here's a good example. Well, maybe it's not good for this podcast. What is the underlying distribution? Yeah. And adding yeah. falls if that's not the underlying distribution. The point yeah. is, Let where me, are you putting your uncertainty? Right. On your hypothesis or on your data? And that's where... But let me, let, me, to let
1: me give you an interesting example. It's a toy example. But
4: anyways, it wasn't yeah, a criticism yeah. about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, no, because I
1: think it's related to my question about agnosticism. is that the kind of priors we want for the brain is like this priors for an appropriate alien technology. It's like saying, like, what's the prior on whether, you know, you know, a certain alien civilization has this feature? It's just, we don't know anything about alien civilizations. Like, how do we come up with a prior for that? And the, so I think, I think Agnosticism, that's what he's saying with the frequentist. Okay, here's an example, like the non-parametric um, permutation test, two-sample distribution. Um, that's valid for any probability distributions if, the, if okay, so the, the, the setup is, it's this shuffling stuff that you've seen, right? But let's, the simplest example is like, you have two distributions. So you have data generated from two distributions, X and Y, let's call the distributions X and Y, And then you have multiple independent samples from X and multiple independent samples from Y. It is possible to to create a hypothesis test that tests the hypothesis whether those samples are the same without making any assumptions other than the independence about the form of the distribution. So that's an example. And that's an example of, like, like if you do that with a Bayesian, then you're going to put a prior on the, the joint distribution on... The, uh, distributions you know and
4: but this you know I, I've this used, is like mean, statistics I is use, messy there's no perfect answer I use that statistics for in my paper and I always try to do it in the most meaningful way yeah. and, you know of course all that uh, non-parametric is good and everything but you always have this idea okay this I, am, I am creating a control distribution I'm yeah. making it up it might or might not be relevant to what the, to the real control distribution could be for the brain because I don't know how the brain is set up and yeah. so like what the shuffling and stuff I do it all the time it's the best you can do but
1: I mean it so has again, its own there's it depends on yeah.
4: whether it's meaningful for the brain but,
1: but it's no, I'm saying for that one it's the question of whether these are you know it's because it's, if it's the appropriate question I mean I think the standard view of the hypothesis testing is more like test a well-defined hypothesis test and maybe that's rare that there's yeah. a well-defined that the bigger problem is that our scientific question actually corresponds to a well-defined hypothesis you know um Anyway, but can, my point
4: was is like, is, yeah. you know, we could do much better in science if we just kind of rely a little more, a little more importance about replicating studies in another lab rather than, you know. Well, replication, there's, 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 there all, yeah. this, all these I right. tests there's and I've... is a lot it. to but, say oh, about oh, replication, oh, just, yeah. yeah.
3: But in some ways, that if you, if you, I think if you step back to, like, what people actually do with the sociology of things, yeah. uh, this thing about Bayesian things, oh, well, well, you don't know what the priors are and then you just gather more data... Well people should gather more data if they can for a lot of the frequency stuff. When you see P less than point zero 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 one or whatever, it's like I don't care if it's like exactly the right thousand. it's obvious, right? And so yeah. Yeah. It, you get as many things as you can if the if the experiment is set up right and the the results are obvious, then you don't have to yeah. you don't have to make this argument, right? Yeah. And and if it's if it's P like
4: yeah, you know, um, 0.04, then you're like,
3: I don't know. Like I, yeah, that, you
4: can be convinced of data without, you know, the gap of a distance. And,
3: it's, and it's, some of it's the same. Also, it's kind of the flip side of the same argument about, oh, yeah, let's actually let's check, check the hypothesis of the, uh, of the assumptions of the hypothesis test. Or if you you know if you get a Bayesian thing, well you actually have to specify your priors, which is also really hard. And then yeah. you know, argue about those. And both of them are really checking so that your statistical framework is really kind of matching your your experiment. Um, and that's really hard in either kind of way. And so yeah, you you'd like it to be easy. So the question is, what do you do? Like, what do you expect when? How how much do you trust statistics overall, like in papers and stuff like that? Uh, And what's the joint, acceptable uh, kind of use and care? Because a lot of it's being careful and being even honest about, you could say there's a trend or a statistic, you know, this is significant, but you're clear what you're actually testing and there may be, you know, there may be issues with that test or something. And then if, the problem, one of the problems, I think, is that if statistics get used to be maybe by students or other people, it's like, well, that tells us where to stop the experiment, right? Like, I need to get enough, this enough data. Like, even whether that experiment, maybe not you're analyzing that data, but, you know, you're happy it came out. Like, I did, I did 10 cells, and, you know, it's significant.
2: It's close. I'll do two more.
3: Even if you don't do that, That's you're still sure. more happy than it is, <laughs> right? You, you have mm-hmm. your set up your test, yeah, mm-hmm. and then you're happy that it's that is significant, and you're good with that. And mm-hmm. rather than I don't know, that data looks kind of funky. Yeah? It's significant, but uh, I don't
1: know. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not like I'm offering an alternative. I mean, yeah. but it's just an observation that it's a he- for for a lot of the literature. It does seem like it's a headache rather than. Uh, You know, fulfilling the role that in in a vacuum it might have been designed to fulfill.
2: uh... But for people in um, neuroscience, it seems to me that um, they've decided that as a prior that the neuron is a little statistical black box that has some probability of firing in any time delta T, and that that probability is modified by some rate function, which is the product of who knows what. Right, and uh, and so we start with this assumption that the neuron is the statistical black box, and so I was wondering, I was asking Todd earlier today, where did this idea come from? I mean, what, who who first said that that's how neurons work? Because that's of course, that's not what most yeah, I, the reason, one reason I put those, I put those that. quotes up to that effect.
1: <laughs> It just helps to facilitate the discussion. Yeah, know? it's like, well, like, like, rather than arguing whether anyone thinks that, well, somebody's written that, uh-huh. at least, that then we could go from there. But I know, I meant to say, I don't know if I said it, that it, I don't, it's not, that's related to this question of not knowing what people really think, because yeah. what neurons, you what need to make, you need to publish a paper. You need to make progress, and, you know... You you can't just sit around and endlessly debate these foundational issues, you know. There definitely you, are people. <laughs> you got, you just have to right swing and right go down. There
2: definitely are people who think that neurons are deterministic yeah. machines.
1: Yeah, but that's what that's what I was saying. Is like I, sometimes I, I I learned that oh I didn't think so. I often, like I said, I don't think I'm making very profound observations that I wouldn't want to defend. This as some insight that no one else has. It's just. You know there's also the performance, and like it's reasonable you got you got to go on with the business of the science or whatever, wh- however complicated that is um, but sometimes I get confused because I just assume okay they write about the noise in a certain way i mean this is probably what you guys are referring to with the, the conversations with Jim Bauer. that and then um you know i I know they don't really think that, but this is a way to continue and let's assume that's the case, conditionally on that, let me do some research and not worry, like solve that problem every time I have to do anything. Uh, but they don't really believe it. And then I, <laughs> I see in other papers and other settings, some, com- some straight comment, like to think, oh, they, no, they really believe it, that, um, that there's some irreducible, no- or the thing is noisy and that's the big problem we have to solve, or that there, there are multiple neurons all signaling the same thing and someone else is averaging them, you know, these kinds of ideas. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm I'm often confused about what the, you know, the difference between the performance and the true beliefs are, too. I mean, in terms of these questions. I mean, one thing that's interesting is the um, axonal failure for noise, right? Um, You mean
2: synaptic release?
1: Synaptic release probability, for
2: example. Yeah, so there are these, you know, there's a... You could ask yourself, if you're a neurophysiologist, you might ask yourself, if neurons are noisy, where does the noise come from? What would be the and what do you mean physical by that? origin of noise? Like, you know, um, uh, radioactive decay is, is probabilistic. It's fundamentally probabilistic. It's what does that mean? in nature. Right? <laughs> yeah, but okay, yeah. But, but if, if, I, if, if I understand something about radioactive decay, I could say I couldn't possibly know anything about when this decay is going to happen. So I can yeah. say it really is a Poisson from process. From
1: the point of view of? Physics. No, or not the observer.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, physics is <laughs> yeah. crazy <like> that. <laughs> but if, uh, if I'm looking at a neuron, I could ask yeah. where would that come from? What kind of physics in a neuron could possibly give rise to, um, to to noise, to something that's random. So for example, if I want my computer to make something that's random, I have to go to a lot of trouble, because computers are not fundamentally noisy, there's no noise source in a computer built into it, so I have to come up with some kind of crazy algorithm. It doesn't work as well as it ought to, and there's controversy about whether it's really random or not. So. Is the brain a thing like a computer that's going to have to create noise for itself if it wants noise, or is it a thing like radioactive decay that just automatically has noise whether you want it to or not? And, and so people have tried to answer those kinds of questions, and one of the things that seems genuinely stochastic about neurons is the stochastic nature of synaptic transmission and, and random failures in synaptic transmission. It's not really non-deterministic. It's noise in the sense, which with the intersection of multiple lo- independent lines of causation that are all deterministic. But in the end, it looks completely random. T- so it's a little bit like a pseudonym. Well, what, I think what we
1: mean by noise there is we imagine there's something being computed. And that's the problem, is you've got to imagine that. And then you say, well, this has nothing to do with that or something, right? I mean,
2: No, no, no. You're just saying... An action potential arrived, yeah. and was there synaptic release of, of transmission? Yeah, but oh, that could there? be the
1: computation that it's not going to be not Yeah, but you don't, have
2: to, you don't have to have any idea about what synaptic transmission means. Well, it's kind of
1: hard to say. Why, why say? Maybe it could be that the fact that it wasn't released was, is, is a part of the computation.
2: Possibly, but if you're studying synaptic transmission, you're not thinking about any computation. You're just thinking action potential release, and then there right. might be biochemical steps. But why that call it noise then? If it doesn't release. They don't. Oh. They don't. They call it stochasticity, <laughs> right? They say that the release is, is unpredictable. And so why would it be well, unpredictable? That's why would it uh, be unpredictable? Maybe yeah. it's that it is predictable, but we just can't predict it because we don't know enough. Yeah. Or maybe it's really unpredictable because it arises from something that's fundamentally unpredictable. Yeah. Or maybe it's unpredictable because there are numerous completely predictable things that are all independent of each other that intersect to make that decision. And so, so it's got such high dimensionality of it, this deterministic thing with super high dimensionality and it yeah. just looks like noise to us.
1: What, okay, so okay, I wasn't distinguishing noise and randomness. So, so when, you, when you use the word noise, you mean?
2: Well, then I do think I know what the signal is. To me, oh. signal is the thing that's interfering with... The noise is the thing that's interfering with my detection of a signal. So I wouldn't use it in a non-communication... Oh, so
1: you only use the word noise when you know what the computation is?
2: Yeah, okay. because I got that yeah, yeah. from Shannon, who knew exactly what noise was. I mean, that's... To me, noise is something that Shannon taught me.
4: Uh-huh. I mean,
2: I didn't learn it from Shannon. I read. <laughs> but then... Uh, but random is, doesn't imply anything about a signal. Something is random just because I can't predict yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But I, I think so, some people
1: use those words interchangeably. I know, there's yeah, all yeah. kinds of, it's one of the yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: crazy word things. So there's one possible place where you could get neurons doing something that didn't seem deterministic at all. The neuron fires. It, there's no release. The next time the neuron fires, there is some release. Yeah. So if you're looking for a source of unpredictability in neuronal interactions, you could, you could jump on that. You could say, oh, boy, I found it. It's yeah. there. And in fact, if, you're, if you think that unpredictability in the nervous system is the source of consciousness, then you could jump on that and say consciousness comes because of synaptic transmission failure. And there are people who have said that. There's whole books written about that idea. And so, uh, uh, which I do not—I have read those. But <laughs> at least, still occasionally read books. But that, but I don't necessarily adhere to some kind of idea about consciousness. I
1: and mean, if if you have a, a, a well-defined computation, in which uh, it's important to use random up, num- truly random numbers, say, or like you could yeah. say, maybe that could would be an appropriate word for that. Be like injecting noise. The use of random number generator.
2: Yeah, I, okay. I mean, I wouldn't. And that's part uh, yeah, of the computation. If you had
1: a that you would call that noise. Yeah, if there's a okay. signal that's being interfered. But with the, the, but the th- it's weird to call it a signal because the random number. It's important to have the random number okay. to do the computation.
2: Yeah, so I I really don't. I like, use, so here's I probably, an example. Like if you're asking me, would I use the use, use the word noise there? I would say no, I wouldn't. I just you would use the word noise. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't use noise, but I don't mind if somebody. But yeah, it's
1: it. not like for example, <laughs> like like okay, a simple example: would be a randomized control trial, like. Yeah. Why do we randomly choose the one population to, to yeah. assign it to a... What is the role noise? of the randomness there?
2: Yeah, would you call that noise? I wouldn't, really. Uh,
1: I, I guess I wouldn't... Uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me if someone called that noise. Uh, I wouldn't take it for granted that it, w- that it wasn't the meaning of the word noise if someone used uh-huh. it. Because like, uh-huh. I would just be confused too often, I think.
2: Uh-huh. Well, so for <laughs> me, anyway, I'm thinking about neurons as communication lines. And so I can't stop... I but there's compu-
1: computation, though, I either, not just communication. Well... the so Shattered is, yeah, that's the thing, is it's communication, not computation. No difference.
2: <laughs> there's some relationship between the two of them, but... It's
1: preserving, like, uh, communicating a state of the world, you know, and pre- therefore preserving the
2: information about that state. Well, if, you just, if state. you just take three communication lines and do... Uh, some of them you've just done a computation, but you really don't have anything but three communication learning. Yeah, that's competition. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's fine. But that's not so be, to me, yeah. if, if I'm could, studying... You, I don't know. I,
3: yeah. you, you could commu- select, be selective in what you're communicating. Yes. Yeah, that's and computation. That's another yeah, that way to say computation. computation. Yeah. yeah, but so that mean, it. That then it becomes not that different than communicating. The problem, yeah. some things that others in The there. problem
2: is the computation at the. But the point the is, bi- you're throwing away information.
1: That's another forward. That's a, could be argued. That's that's another way we call it noise. At the biological right? level,
2: uh, you can yeah. understand the cause of something being random, but there's no biological. Yeah. Equivalent. I think that's a co- big independent computation. There isn't something I could look at. This is a big problem for neuroscientists. I'd like to stick my electrode in the brain and measure the computation. But I can't do that because the computation isn't a thing that you can measure in the brain. So it is off limits for like biological measurement. You must have to infer it from something, from something that wasn't, that you measured that wasn't a computation. So I measured some release of transmitter. I measured some synaptic potential. I measured some action potential. I think that somewhere in there, there was a computation, but it wasn't the release of transmitter it wasn't the synaptic potential and it wasn't the action potential, Uh, but but it was probably in there somewhere. So that's one of the reasons why it's pretty easy for biologists to study action potential generation, propagation, release of transmitters, synaptic transmission, action potential generation at the next end, yet we can know a lot about that but still not know very much about computation.
1: So it's good to have an example because we're, this is really a big abstract. That's the problem with um, studying the brain is that if, yeah, we don't know what it is, we're already at like the level of abstraction that everyone disagrees with, right?
2: Except we have some, I mean, if we're looking for something that we do agree on, we could talk about how action potentials get generated, right. how they get propagated, how synaptic transmitters get released, that kind of stuff. Right, so right, we could right. start, I guess we could we could start with fairly safely with that stuff right. and develop but that but i think it's not clear how what you, it's not clear what
1: noise it is in, the, in those settings it's not clear what you can talk about noise unless you have a signal right
2: you can definitely talk about randomness or you can talk about randomness of but of that's what you're distinguishing yeah. those right
1: yeah. i'm using your sense of the word yeah. noise yeah until um, you have until you know yeah. what the signal is it's really hard yeah. to know yeah. it so if for example in, noise, in, in
2: some yeah. of your stuff you're, you're saying. Let's assume. In fact, we can construct some spike trains in which the signal is some small amount of synchronous activity, and then we could ask: Can we separate that signal from the noise? Is that a well? Another secret? way to look
1: at it is more like: If I want to separate the contributions of different kinds of timescales, then one way to do it is, um, you know, I guess. Can you think about it as noise? It wouldn't matter if the slower time scale it's almost being how do you be agnostic about the slower time scale? One version of that is if it's just noise right um, here, okay, here's the interesting thoughts about that. somewhat relates to what I talk about, and um, it gives a concrete example. so like, so in the randomized control trial, it's just just to remi- just to remind ourselves like the reason that it's random is that we're imagining our en- like our en- like God is like a diabolical enemy, right? Like, so the, and we believe that what we mean by random is nothing in nature could predict what i what i by selection my random control mechanism that just gives me peace of mind that they're not connected. there's not some confound that's hidden that's the only reason it's been random, right We could just choose split it into two parts um in you know maybe by in the, in some population look, look at the people A to m and n to z. And if we really believe the letter has nothing to do with what we're studying, that's the same as random. Yes. So what we mean is independent, is mm-hmm. unpredictable by our theory of nature, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so I mean, so here's an example of that. So that related to that, so that, that that whole the binding by synchrony story I was telling, we were talking about. So the 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 the. So this is the Stu theory. I kind of hit it at quickly and with a little more depth to Todd earlier, which is... So here's the uh, thing he was interested in. So Binding by Secret, it it is a... For neuroscientists. It, it... I think it's not... um, It's a controversial concept. I mean, um, and it's normally associated with, I guess, Singer or maybe Vandermal, certain names um, in which the idea is that you have perceptual parts um, and those perceptions are maybe... Um, based on neural activity or population activity, and that's often thought of as some variances like features. And they somehow have to be put together, and that's called binding, how they're put together. There's a lot, there's controversy even in that. But then there's the idea that that's done by synchrony. And then there might be some experiments about that, like observing synchrony, and then these questions come up about what do you mean by synchrony? Chance comes up, and all that. That's what we were talking about today, I was talking about today. So anyway, so so, th- so th- th- with that background, it actually, I, I, we were motivated by a particular idea of Stu's, which is different a little bit than all that in that it was more mechanistic. Like his idea, actually he gave the mechanism for where the synchrony was going to come from, and why he was interested in it. And this role of randomness ends up playing a role, I think, in that. It's kind of like the role of the randomness in the randomized control trial like you can see why what you mean by randomness and why you want it um, so his idea is the following like so he um, he. this is someone who's thought a lot about um, computer vision and so the more the pure um, like the non-biological version of intelligence like just putting the biology aside and um, you know built a lot of vision machines and, and in fact this was before the deep nets the current state of the art you know um, and someone who thought a lot about complicated probab- probability models for these things, and, um, and he said he felt he had this intuition, um, and you know, I, I might be um, translating it wrong, so don't blame him. But so, but, but my impression was he had the understanding that um, you know segmentation is a really fundamental problem. It, it was like famously so in computer vision that um, you know they said we'll do this this summer, and you know, it's sixty years later, you know. What goes with what, um in a in a in a in a visual scene, and you know, for any sensory modality, that's a problem. Um and so he felt like the thing that happened was that you have some invariances, so you you do he does you do take seriously that you're detecting something. And that's that what that means is that you react invariantly to something. Meaning like I said mom that's an invariance to something I thought about my mom you know the speech act is the invariance there so so imagine you have these things and then th- he felt like you often do build such things when you're building like a a le- a capture recognition device for some company um and then but then the problem is like you know the background the thing you also gets lit up by the, your feature detectors no matter how well you do the feature detector whether it's a line detector or Face detector or whatever and um, and then you end up with you can 't just kind of treat all the feature detectors independently and then make some decision about what the scene is or something like that so you got to figure out which ones go with which thing, so like which line which which curve here goes with this curve here to make the face and um, and so that so that was the bi- that's that's but that 's kind of the binding issue if you think about it that way, and he felt like the problem was always that, you know, that you're gonna get all these false alarms um, and you've lost the sense of the relationships by building the feature detectors. And then he had this strong kind of conjecture um, as a, which ended up being like a principle of grouping, which was, so then you have, you have to have not just kind of plausibility in detecting a feature, but you have to have a way of symbolizing or representing relationships among feature detectors like relationships between objects or relationships between parts of a sentence to form the sentence, etc. And um, the strong conjecture was the degree to which things ought to be bound together, in the sense of forming some kind of relationship, was the degree to which whatever activated them was the same thing. So, for example, you know, you're building a line detector, and it's built out of pixels, or maybe you know, um, yeah. Say let's stick to computer vision, um, and then so, but and what you mean by line detector is maybe translation invariance in some receptive field or something like that. And but that itself is coming up from other, like, um, like maybe thalamic cells that have receptive fields that are, you know, on surround, off on off, you know, on center, off surround, or something like that. Like basically, like pixels. And then the line detector is saying um, this is firing or this is firing or this is firing, or this, is firing or this is firing, that's a line. Or it's somewhere else. This is firing and this is firing this is firing. Um, and then somehow you have two different line detectors and in fact they're drawing from a common pool at the retina or the thalamus or whatever. And, and so he wanted to know whether he wanted to bring those to bind those together uh, whether um, they were. Um, it was the same stuff. So, for example, you have two different lines. Is it literally the same pixels that they share that's activating them? So that they would be. So, if you have two different line detectors, you know, when they share the same stuff, they're like basically overlapping. Versus this, they're not overlapping. And so, so when he was thinking about the biologically, he conjectured that. you'd want to know, in order to determine whether things were activated by the same stuff, you could look at whether, if they were being coded by spikes, whether their spikes were synchronous. Because the degree to which their spikes are synchronous would reflect that they had a common input, even if it could be many layers away. Right. So why would that be the case? Um, well, okay, so that, that's a kind of a coding scheme. In, fa- in fact, you know, when I was, that's what I was saying a little bit in my talk. Like, in, in the causal inference literature, that is a principle, like this Reichenbach's principle of common cause, which is that if things are correlated, there's a common cause, or they cause each other. And it's argued about, but it's still kind of there as like a, a, a gestalt almost. This is kind of the same thing. But the, what's happening is that as you pass through the spikes, you've lost the information about who caused this neuron to spike. But in this case, if the timing is random, it's like the randomized control trial. Because it's random, it's just independent. Then the only way they have the same timing is that they had a common author. But it was important that that author be random, kind of, in the sense of the randomized control trial. Because if, they were, if it, was a, it was just kind of... If it was... Um, say it was, it was firing like a periodic oscillator, there wouldn't be much room to, like, distinguish authors. You know what I mean? Like, the the fact that they're, it's random, which means independent to what you're trying to do, makes the coincidence much stronger when there is a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be an example of, like, okay, that's a system in which you're, you're using randomness somehow. By randomness now, it's like, it's really independence, unpredictability, um, for some purpose, kind of like in the randomized control trial. In fact, in, in, in a lot of machine learning and... Mathematics randomness is systematically used, and even in proofs, right? In the channel, the the channel coding theorem, it's like things are easier just by assuming it's random.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. So.
2: I didn't mean to argue that randomness didn't exist. I, in fact, we were talking about about where it comes from. We were just yeah. About no, no. I, but
1: this is the randomness of just independence. Uh-huh. It's just like unpredictable. Like I want to flip a coin to check, choose which subjects would get the treatment mm-hmm. because I, I know that there's, in my view, theory of the world, there's no way you can go from the coin flipping to knowing what the drug is going to do, uh-huh. right? Um, so it's just a statement of ignorance. Like, it's like, you know, independence judgments are easier to make than probability judgments. Like if I ask you, what's the probability a certain word is said in some street in Japan the next minute? you wouldn't know, but if I ask you whether it's affected, connected to this one, you'd be like, yeah, it has nothing to do with this bus. Um.
4: It's interesting, um, you know, a lot of what we're discussing, I know with Charlie, I don't know if he's going to like what I'm saying, but... Who? A lot of what we're discussing, actually, it, it goes back to, in a way, that kind of philosophical difference between Bayesian and frequentist because... <laughs> okay. yeah, hey, know, you, who's not going to like, gonna like people it? People <laughs> would know me uh, uh, for uh, a while. You're not going to like it. Like it. This is, uh, I think this is where I came in. I think we're, we're oscillating. <laughs> here, <laughs> so. the, the fact is, like, you know, where randomness is, that's actually yeah. the yeah. question. Is like, you know, for frequentists, you're assuming the reality is, it, is created by random number generators that are biased. That's but you still think that feminist. even after that... A Bayesian believes that uncertainty comes from the limits of the human action observation and understanding. But
1: then you didn't agree with what and I said then. then.
4: Well, you know, just the question is, is it, it's what Charlie no, saying. is saying, is it a neuron deterministic or not? Where does this randomness come from? Is it like, you You know, people use noise, but because noise is a your measurement error, is it like something that... You could have deterministic systems that are chaotic, and so they look like random, but they're not really random. Is it... What is this random? But so I was just
1: pointing out that, you know, if you go back like to the Neiman paper, where the frequencies thing was first developed, what he was trying... He was working within the Bayesian point of view, but he was just trying, what conclusions can I make without... Uh, That'll it, that be... That'll be the same regardless no, no, of my fine. choice I mean, of prior.
4: Lots of people have investigated that issue. You know, no, you but know, that's that different
1: than what you're saying, right? No, it's well, not I mean, about, saying, he's not assuming there's a random number generator. All
4: I'm saying is that uh, sometimes like these philosophical differences can go a long way to, you know, just kind of inform the kind of discussion that is going on. Because a lot of the things that I've been hearing in this discussion goes back to that. And you know, it's like, where is this randomness coming from? Is it the word that is random, or is the randomness like now? I understand what you saying, but I didn't and understand. So
1: I Why do you say that frequentists believe there's a random number generator? I because didn't they put that
4: uncertainty on the data. So right, they assume but, but, that the data are produced. But just think fra- through this. Like, they assume if the data I, is yeah. generated from distributions. No, but but what, what but
1: but what days Neiman days. was doing is he said I'm, I'm in the Bayesian world, so there's a prior and there's a po- and there's a likelihood and there's a posterior, so there's that's Bayesian. But then he's like, but I want a conclusion that would be the, that would be the same regardless of the choice of the prior. Yeah,
4: that's not prob- about thinking it's a random the number generator. problem generative. has never been solved. What's anyways, that? Anyways, no, but, that, but that's, that's it's that, solved, that, and that, it's, no, it's not like. No, but that's what the frequentist I test is. So it's just I don't. I'm, not, I, I, I'm <laughs> it's beyond like fade. <laughs> <laughs> fade to black. Fade to black. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you're right. We're going in circles. Going in circles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I am beyond the methodological issue. I was just going to point out that there is still these unresolved problems, like where do we think this randomness comes? And depending on where we come, we call it noise or we call it what something else. And with the way we're thinking about the brain, I was thinking about what Charlie was saying about so like where is the computation? Where is this randomness? Where the where the randomness kind of contributes to the competition or not, and and all of that, that really comes down to these ideas. Like, is there randomness in the physical? Is it like the physical reality created through a random process versus um, you know that's more like our limits that we see it that way. That that's all. That's all I wanted to bring back to the yeah discussion. yeah. I totally. Just I mean, just saying. I don't want to. You know, like. There was a like the a source of, of the
1: randomness of them, is, um, I mean, is, um, I mean, the large majority at the time seems to be the lack of knowledge of the agent who is coming up with the probability. It's like Barlow said. Right? Yeah, it's Barlow the the said the that. What, the, what was that quote? It's the neuron, uh,
0: it's not the neurons' incompetence; it's the experimentalist. Uh, yeah.
1: experimentalist ignorance. I don't think that's. I'm just saying that's you. I'm just saying, that's actually different (laughs) from... You could do that, you could believe that and do frequentist stuff. That's what Efron's saying in that article.
4: Yeah.
1: Um, but
0: This is like, so much of this (laughs) is embedded in the language of all of this, just that we spent the 15 minutes trying to decipher the sort of vantage point on the word noise when... I mean, it's... Yeah. We ended up probably
1: doing the Jim Bauer, the... the, um, the comp neuro thread that you were referring to
2: <laughs> no very Not even
1: <laughs> got started. <That> <laughs>
2: was, <laughs>
0: Francesca's ready to <laughs> to keep going, but we, we're going to have to call it because it's late and this was fun okay. and uh, illuminating. And there's going to be a lot of Wikipedia searches after this. I'm sure, amongst the <laughs> listeners as well as myself. But thank you for joining us and doing this and playing along. And uh, this has been neuroscientist talk show. <laughs>